Hi there, Happy New Year, and welcome back to Humans of InfoSec. For this week's podcast, we just wanted to note that since the recording of this episode, Anne-Marie Zettelmoyer has accepted a new role as VP of Security Engineering at MasterCard. And now on to this week's episode. From Cobalt Headquarters in San Francisco, this is Humans of InfoSec, a show about real people, their work, and its impact on the information security industry. My name is Caroline Wong, and I'd like to introduce today's guest, my friend and colleague, Anne-Marie Zettelmoyer. Anne-Marie and I were introduced after a mutual friend of ours met her in Las Vegas at Black Hat this summer. She began her career in finance and accounting, and her passion for solving tough business problems led her to cybersecurity. An expert in business analytics and security metrics with a particular strength for translating between groups and seeing technical problems through a business lens, Anne-Marie has served as a trusted advisor for several Fortune 500 companies, government agencies, law enforcement, security vendors, and think tanks. She's on the board of directors for SSH. She's a visiting fellow at the National Security Institute, and she's also a former MMA fighter. Anne-Marie, <laughs> welcome to our podcast. Thanks. Happy to be here. So we're actually talking maybe a month later than we originally scheduled. Um, we had to reschedule a couple of times because the first time I needed to go to the doctor because of an eye injury that I got playing with my three-year-old daughter. The second time was because you were visiting Capitol Hill, um, doing advocacy on the Hill for She Leads Tech as part of ISACA. Uh, and I understand you were um, looking at different policy perspectives on a panel for the National Security Institute. Can you tell us a little bit about what you were talking about uh, when you were visiting Capitol Hill that time? Sure. I mean, so what was great about that day is that it was a, a bringing together of several technical female leaders in security and technology to advocate to the Hill about issues in security in general, but also diversity, things that were important to uh, women and, and minorities and anybody that's un underrepresented. And we met with Speaker Pelosi's staff, as well as um, Senator Harris's staff, uh, my team specifically, and talked about a couple of different interesting things. One of them being, you know, how does policy uh, fit into advancing the national security strategy and specifically addressing cyber challenges? And we also talked about one of those challenges being workforce development, another being how do we incentivize um, secure monetization versus just regular, you know, get a tax credit to upgrade systems. I think what's missing in the policy perspective is the requirement for those upgrades to be done securely in order to qualify for these credits and incentives. Mm -hmm. We haven't caught up with that language yet. And so we talked about that a bit. And we also talked about how the diversity of thought is required in order to meet the workforce challenge that is, you know, coming to fruition. And it's not just that, you know, we don't have enough people that are trained now. I don't think we have enough understanding of what it takes to be successful in the field. Mm -hmm. There are, um, you know, many jobs out there that have ridiculous requirements, <laughs> even for entry-level folks. 
Um, and I know that's been talked about a lot lately in several circles that I'm in. For an entry-level person, they expect five years of, of experience. How does that work? That's you know, self-defeating in, you know, mm-hmm. in, in and of itself. But there's also you know, this sense that there are several areas of security that can be treated as a trade where you don't need a degree. You don't necessarily need you know, to understand programming to the nth degree, nor do you need to understand regulation, regulation requirements and compliance to the nth degree. Security is a wide breadth, and we can start solving some of these issues by focusing on workforces that have the aptitude and the ability to meet this need. Because as I had mentioned when I was on the Hill, and I, I had heard someone else say this, so I'm not going to claim, um, you know, <laughs> claim authorship of it. But, you know, talent and aptitude are not discriminant for time and location, but opportunity often is. Mm. And so there are definitely populations, for example, um, miners in the Appalachians, there's been some studies and some investment there. Um, to take that aptitude for quick thinking or perseverance or problem solving, um, which you have to do in order to be able to monitor conditions in the mind so that you can get out fast and all of those good things, to, to, to retrain some of those folks into cybersecurity and tech fields, right? Because when you're sitting in, in the sock, you know, a great indicator for an analyst is, is that they have the maturity of thought if they have the ability to work through problems, if they're curious, if they can watch different indicators and different things in order to come to analytical conclusions. And that population has been shown to have that aptitude and capability, but they have not had the opportunity or the focus or the attention to be provided with that type of training. I, th- I think that's so brilliant. I, I have wondered for a while now if there's a way in which the way that our industry is not diverse in some ways and the fact that we have this talent shortage, if those two things can kind of meet up. And I think that, you know, the example of the types of skills and wisdom and experience that this particular population kind of brings to the table um, and, and the fact that people are thoughtful about how those can be applied. Um, I just think that's so cool. Thank you so much for sharing with us. Sure, I mean, diversity isn't just uh, how, you, how you look or how you orient or whatever, it's how you think. And I, I talk about that a lot. You really need diversity of thought in the room, diversity of experience, diversity of, of solving problems in order to come up with comprehensive solutions and well-rounded practices. Otherwise, you know, we end up doing the same thing we've always done, regardless of if it's just you and me in the room <laughs> or, or a bunch of uh, other folks that look the same, you know? Yeah. Anne-Marie, I'd love to share with our listeners some insight into how you think. A question that I often ask our podcast guests is how they got into the security field. And in your, in your case, I understand that the first decade of your career actually was focused on accounting and particularly building systems to make accounting happen. You've shared with me a story about how one of your early projects uh, working for a utility organization had to do with revenue protection. 
Um, and I'd like to ask you, how did working in accounting and working with data influence the way that you think about solving business problems? Well, so that's a good question. And I think there's a couple of angles to it. One, there's not a large leap, honestly, between accounting and security. We talked about CIA uh, once, uh, principles of CIA, not the agency, <laughs> but the principles of <laughs> CIA, which is, which is near and dear to a security practitioner's heart. It is also near and dear to an accountant's heart. So that is actually one of the core pieces in an accountant's curriculum because you're taught to design systems that are reliable, defensible, that have the integrity within them so that you can produce uh, financial statements that are, are reasonable for decision making, which means you know there's a risk reward to it. It's not going to be 100% perfect, just like the security systems we build aren't going to be 100% perfect, but they they allow the business to operate at a, at a certain level of risk where they can make decisions constant. And so, you know, a lot of that has to come with data and logic. And with the revenue protection piece example, this was an organization, a utility that just to touch back on what revenue protection is in this context, it's the ability to realize everything that you sell. You know, people that owe you money, you know, that have bought your services, how do you protect that revenue generation by actually collecting the funds back, you know? So just like a, a CFO is, you know, uh, charged with protecting the financial assets of companies, the you know security team is also charged with protecting the assets of the company, right? And I just want to keep drawing those parallels over. This particular one, they were struggling with, you know, the fact that they couldn't get people. They noticed a large percentage of their of their customer base when they moved, you know, were not paying their bills, right? The you know the amount of receivables kept going up, and they get longer and longer and longer. And, you know, if you were managing this organization by anecdote that many of us have experienced before and, and not data, that allows you to inject your own bias into the decision-making process and really doesn't allow you to make uh, or develop, you know, solutions that actually work, right? So if you, if you were managing by anecdote, you may say, oh, well, people aren't paying their bills because they're lazy or they don't have money or they just don't want to. In this case, when you looked at the data, you would find that the majority of people that were moving were actually excellent customers, and excellent customers for years. They paid bills on time, they paid them in full, they had excellent credit ratings. So why then, what was happening uh, so that now this person obviously didn't pay their bill and it'd be outstanding for a month, three months, a year, let's say, which would then affect their credit, which would open up the company to liability. The reality was they weren't paying the bill because they weren't getting the bill. <laughs> that was the causation. And so I think when you are developing solutions, there's a difference between correlation and causation that a lot of folks don't um, necessarily care to nuance. Um, let alone get into data-driven decisions. They tend to go by anecdote. So how, you, how do you solve that problem of protecting company revenue in a way that also works for the user? At that time, long ago, 
and, and I think that's true in some utilities still, there was not a mechanism for people to estimate their final bill. There was not a, a, a mechanism for people to say, hey, just charge my credit card, whatever the final balance is, and load it into the system. This is, this is when PCI first came in, and there wasn't enough security baked in in order to keep those, you know, those cards on file and all these types of things. So that's, you know, that was, I think, a great example that I like to give of when, you know, you can assume, and it seems, and the assumption seems logical, that X is happening because of Y. But when you actually bring data into, into the equation and how people behave, right, like our, our users want to do the right thing, right? So why aren't they doing the right thing? Let's not assume. Let's get some data behind it. And then you can build systems that actually work for the human work for the customer, work for the business. And the solution that we had had great success. That is so cool. I, I think that in many fields that are less mature, um, and perhaps, you know, you could say information security as an industry is still developing, although now it's like been developing for 20 years, like when are we going to get mature? Um, I do think that it's interesting to watch an industry, whether it be accounting or cybersecurity, sort of transition from decisions being made by opinion, by anecdote, by assumption. Uh, sometimes those assumptions are, well, that's the way we've always done things. Um, and, and moving that toward data-based uh, decision-making. You know, when you talk about users wanting to do the right thing and security folks being curious about why aren't they doing the right thing. It reminds me of um, another thing which, which I've heard come up a lot, which is like, well, why aren't developers or the technical folks building these systems doing the right thing? Or even why aren't executives doing the right thing? Why aren't I getting the proper investment that I expect into my programs? And I'd actually like to, to drill into your thoughts on that a little bit more. Can you tell me about your approach to metrics and measurement? How, how have you applied these same business, sort of data-driven business analytics principles uh, when you find yourself advising cybersecurity teams? Well, the first thing about that is that your decision-making process, even if it's a data-based decision, it's never a data-only decision. Mm -hmm. Experience, intuition, and unfortunately bias is always going to come into play. Emotion is always going to come into play. And a lot of people look at accounts as just bean counters, right? And finance people as just, you know, Ooh, here's my chart. <laughs> but, you know, we have to deal with a lot of emotion um, in those practices as well. I mean, the stock market alone is pure emotion, right? It is absolutely <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> the way that it shifts every day. It's, an, it's a very emotional thing. And if you're in accounting and finance, that's taught to you too. You know, the market is based on emotion. So how do you, you know, but you can still build models to sort of predict or influence that a little bit. In, in the question about engineers. You know, I, I had just had this conversation, which is funny, you know, uh, in New York, maybe a couple of weeks ago, where uh, a large corporation was talking to me about this. And I said, you know, our, our engineers want to do the right thing, but they don't know what to do. Mm. And why can't people just tell them what to do? <laughs> and what are the expectations? Yeah. And I think it gets a little murky because one, the academic field has not yet baked in 
secure coding principles into the curriculum, and there's, we're doing a lot of advocacy to change that. So industry has to pick up where engineering has left off. Second, I think the management and engineering is heavily rewarded for meeting production. And again, there's not that secure production. Security has not yet been put in as a measure of success, mm -hmm. a measure of the release, which is changing, I think. And thirdly, on the security side, you know, we, I see a lot of hand waving and people say, oh, you need to code secure, but they can't answer the question, what does that mean? <laughs> right? Because, you know, building security programs isn't just about fancy tech and secure coding principles. It's also about the practice of running an organization. Hmm. So if you're going to work with a group of engineers and say, you need to code securely, but you don't have a benchmark of what that is, nor have, do you have the ability to create for them feedback mechanisms, a la metrics and measures, to show them when they hit success, when they don't hit success, what they're going to be measured by, you will just build and continue to build the frustration and kind of like the talking past each other um, that we see happen. And I think data, which is what I use a lot of time to translate between teams, I speak every business language and a lot of security languages, but I always try to bring data into the mix because I find it's a great normalizer of conversation, right? Especially in the beginning where people don't understand each other, they'll put a little more faith in the data because math is like a universal language, right? Yeah. It should be, uh, it, it's more readily understood than if I'm talking to you about, you know, uh, hashes. You know, to, totally. Yeah. Numbers, know, right? make sense to, numbers make sense to every person in every culture in the world, you know, at every age above probably three or so. Um, so it is like this thing that, that we all get. Um, I, I love this point that you're making with regards to, look, when security and development teams are interacting there is this element of organizational management that has to occur. Um, and, and you kind of talk a little bit about defining for teams, like what does incremental success look like when you're trying to address, you know, perhaps basic security and development problems and, and how do people prevent getting overwhelmed when there seems like there's so much to do? You know, what kind of advice do you typically give folks when they're trying to figure out how do we define what success looks like when we're looking at doing something that can seem overwhelming because we have so many choices uh, to mm -hmm. make about where to start? How how do we go about beginning that? How what kind of what kind of things do you advise people to to try when they're at the beginning and and just trying to figure out where to start? Well, in the engineering example, and I think this can be applicable to anything, the best solution is going to be made by co-creating it with your ecosystem, mm -hmm. right? And that means having focus groups, having discussions with the users, the engineers, the business leaders on what defines success from them from a business perspective and how can security enable them to do that by handling the risk equation for them. That is what security is there to do. You're there to enable the business. That's got to be the first forefront question, focus from every security practitioner, right? It's got to be how am I, I am there to enable the business to operate securely. 
right, to defend them, to advise them, to create things where they can achieve goals in in the in the best way, right, in the way that makes sense given the profile of the company. So if you understand what they're trying to achieve, then you can understand how to secure it. That's number one. And then you can build evangelists within that team, within the security, within the engineering team that can help advocate for why these things are important. When you start out from a measurement perspective, you know, metrics, measurement, that's an evolution of things. As you get more mature in an organization, you can develop denser metrics um, where people start to understand how decisions are influenced. And here's what I mean by that. If you're starting out with an organization that's never done code review, you may say that the first thing that you have to do is get to X percent of code review, right? Mm -hmm. You know, and before you hit a production mark, you've got to go through so many code reviews first, right? And then you may say, or with your focus group, you may say, that's important to know, right? In order to watch how many engineers have been through security training, mm. right? That might be another metric, right? We're talking about what is actually going to affect the outcome. If the outcome is to have the product be secure for X standards, then we got to peel away what is going to cause that to be true. What question are you trying to answer with the metric or the measure, right? Is it why isn't this code secure? Why isn't this product, you know, meeting expectations, right? Does it work? And does it work securely, right? If it doesn't work securely, why? Well, it went through production without getting code review. Oh, okay. What was the root problem? You know, what is there a type of security flaw or whatever that got missed? That's, that's, a, that's a different piece to it. But when you're trying to affect behavior, what would have caught? You know, you could get the number, you know, you might, you might be at a maturity level where you're just thinking of how many code reviews have you done if you're thinking of capacity and how to support that, like the size of a team. But the number of code reviews isn't going to indicate whether or not you're effectively handling the process. Mm. The percentage of products that successfully go through code review is a better indicator, you see. Yeah, I do I do think that sometimes when people are trying to use measurement um and relate that to security and risk management conversations, I I have observed that sometimes people choose what is easy to measure versus necessarily what measurement is a true indicator of the outcome that you're trying to achieve. And so I think that's a really, really good point that you're making. Well, I think part of that is because it's easy for people to think that measurement or data is intuitive. Like, oh yeah, of course, I know what's going to be, you know, an indicator for success there. Nay, nay. <laughs> that is a scientific practice area in and of itself. There's a whole cadre of data scientists that are like, oh, God, no, <laughs> it is not that easy. Yeah. You, just, you just, you know, get into silly decisions. And I mean, I've seen, gosh, I've seen organizations that are making decisions on metrics that have nothing to do with the problem, let alone mm. is the metrics, you know, actually formulated correctly, like the math is wrong. 
And on top of that, the dating sex <laughs> is not even appropriate like the, for defining the metric, and the metric is not appropriate for affecting the decision. But when you're talking in anecdotes, and you're like, oh, yeah, I guess, I guess that makes sense. You know, the number of cars in the street should depend on how wide it is or what I, I right, you know, which, yeah. you know, and, and I, I need to understand that decision to see if I get, you know, if it makes sense for me to fly. Like, yeah, just, you know, like, yeah. you know one can sort of relate-ish. The other has nothing to do with it. And then on top of that, you count the number of, you know, the trees that you see in a field to, to build that metric. I mean, I had literally seen that before, right? Or you take the number of motorcycles, which have nothing to do with the width of a car, with the width of, you know, of a street. And so, you know, data science is important and it's, it's an important field just as, you know, application security is important, just as, you know, pen testing is, is important. They're all crafts that, you know, need to be respected for their own area of expertise. And that's when I talk about you need diversity of thought, right? I've seen a lot of, of instances where people just sort of kind of wing it, you know, where you get security saying, oh, there's a lot of people in security that aren't actual experts, but they call themselves experts. Yeah, there's a lot of people in security that aren't data scientists. <laughs> 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 it's kind you of know? like, yeah, it's kind of like, you know, there's a, this concept, right, this past couple of years of, like, fake news, um, and it's almost yeah. like this is, like, fake metrics, you know, just because you're counting something doesn't mean that the count has any sort of relevance toward the decision you're trying to make or the outcome that you're trying to achieve. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And, you know, I say these in, in tongue-in-cheek because in security, we we all know and understand and advocate that it's everybody's job and it takes a village to operate securely. But I think we need to kind of take our own perspective to heart on that sometimes where that doesn't mean telling the rest of the village what to do. It yeah. means understanding the needs of the village and you owning your expertise and allowing others to own their expertise and together come into kind of like a, you know, I use this analogy between um, IT and M-shaped models for teams. Hmm. And, you know, I had this uh, CISO tell me one time that I was advising, and he said, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm getting the best experts, best experts all over the place. You know, just, just the absolute most technical people I possibly can to, to develop this team. Hmm. And I said, okay. How's that going for you? <laughs> he's like, it's, he's like, well, they're really brilliant. They can solve a tough problem. And I said, are, are they, are they having problems working together? Right? He's like, yeah, well, kind of. And so I started, to, I got up on the whiteboard and I started to explain this philosophy. Right? So what he was describing is what I would call an I-shaped model where you're really narrow and deep into one subject field. Mm. That's needed in some cases. The problem is though, those folks, if they've only narrow and deep in one area, I-shaped, then they tend to have a problem relating um, to other team members. And they, you know, they think that every, if all you have are hammers, every problem is a nail. That's one of, you know, the downfalls of that. The goal, I think, what operates a little bit better is a T-shaped model 
where you have that narrow focus, but you also have an understanding of broader concepts across that can connect to mm-hmm. each other. If you visualize what a T shape looks like, right? Mm-hmm. You're narrow in a lot of other areas too. And that presents a curiosity of thought and a willingness to learn that I think is uh, more adept to powerful teams in general. When I try to build teams, I look for an M-shaped model. That's my ideal. And I can grow T's into M's. It's a little hard to grow I's into T's, but it's not like it can't be done. Um, and sometimes you need a couple, at least two I's on a team, not just one. <laughs> you, need, you need another I. To, if you're going to have one, you need at least two, so they balance each other. Um, but an M-shaped person, if you think of the letter M in like sort of like block form, Right. This is someone that is deep in two, at least two areas yeah. and kind of deep in a third. Right. But also has that those connecting bridges. And I think of the, you know, a block M. And to me, that's the, the ultimate expression of a curiosity of thought. Right. Where you are passionate enough about your craft to understand how it is affected by other disciplines. And so you get deep into other disciplines. And you also are curious enough to see how they connect to other concepts. So that's where I try to, to go when, I, when I'm advising folks on how to shape teams, shape diversity, thought, shape expertise, not just across the team, but in the individual itself. I love it. I have certainly observed the I-shaped team phenomenon that you're describing. Um, <laughs> and I never had a great way to articulate it. Um, so this I-shaped, T-shaped, M-shaped model uh, that you're sharing with us is, is just so cool. Emery, I can't believe it, but we're actually out of time. I want to say thank you so, <laughs> so much for joining us on the podcast. I hope that you'll come back and join us again because um, I know there's just so much interesting stuff that we could talk about. Um, But thank you so much for being with us today and for sharing your story and helping us to understand a little bit about how you think and how you've been helping organizations and leaders uh, to think about solving their business problems. Thank you. I've had an excellent time. And of course, I will come back because who wouldn't want to spend time chatting with you? Yay. Oh, thank you so much. (laughs) Humans of InfoSec is brought to you by Cobalt, a pen testing as a service company. You can find us on Twitter at Humans of InfoSec.